Beyond the, Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight with me, Ken Wei. The very first day of the year 2024 marks the 45th anniversary of China-U.S. diplomatic ties. On this occasion, we spoke to movers and shakers to hear their insights into China and U.S. relations. They say like father, like son. That applies to this father and son duel. Zbigniew Brzezinski, the father, and Mark Brzezinski, the son. The father was an advisor to the Lyndon Johnson administration and national security advisor to President Jimmy Carter. He was instrumental in firming up the foundation of budding China-U.S. relations. The son, Mark Brzezinski, a former U.S. ambassador to Sweden, inherited his father's fascination about the world, and he is most keen on the fate of China-U.S. relations. I spoke to him earlier. Our conversation began at the Diaoyutai guest house, the very same guest house that hosted his father during those important visits to China many years ago. Diaoyutai State Guest House, that's where your father once wore. Yes. I'm sure you heard a lot from him, the stories decades ago about U.S. and China. I did. I'm sure those stories will be even more meaningful today. Well, it's so great that you start this interview that way, because for the last couple of days, I really felt I was channeling my late father because he believed so much in the Sino-U.S. relationship as having the potential to address some of the world's great challenges of today and tomorrow. He really felt that this is the most important relationship America has with the world. If he were still alive today, what he would be doing is he would be on American television using his credibility and his legitimacy as a statesman, as someone who had produced for the American people in foreign policy, he would be explaining to the American people mm. how, how the Sino-U.S. relationship benefits them. And he would be coming to China to meet with the Chinese leadership and to say, it takes two to tango. Mm. Both sides have to constructively engage each other. Both sides bring good aspects and things that need to be improved. Do we still have statesmen like this? That's an excellent question. The American political context has changed since the time of the Cold War. During the Cold War, who led American foreign policy? Mm -hmm. Kissinger, Brzezinski, Scowcroft, mm -hmm. Albright, people who were true foreign policy scholars and who had steeped their knowledge in foreign policy from the very beginning to the very end. Right. They weren't part-time foreign policy guys who join a presidential administration because they'd helped the president campaign. These were America's and the world's best experts on the foreign policy challenges America mm. faced around the world. Mm. Since the Cold War, the primacy of expertise in American foreign policy has been replaced by other priorities right. in the American political game. What counts in American politics today? Is it expertise? It really, it's more about votes and more about money. That's the American political game. And as a result, you get what you ask for. Yeah. When you elect a president today, there's a lot of political people, not foreign policy specialists, but political people who want jobs in government. The foreign policy jobs are very attractive. They want the foreign policy jobs, yes. but they don't bring the expertise. 
As a result of that, how do you see the potential between China and the United States? Now, Ambassador Brzezinski, you know better than I do that what's going on right now on the trade is only a portion of the U.S.-China relations. That's right, yeah. The real picture is much bigger than that. Well, let's talk about both sides, because I think that's an important point. Mm. First of all, let's not minimize the trade differences. The trade differences are important for a key constituency, a key beneficiary of this relationship, mm -hmm. the business community in both countries and also in other countries. Don't forget about that. Right. And all of them want this to be solved, and all of them want America and China to operate within a rules-based system. And I'm actually confident that this will be resolved because I believe that, that the Chinese have been clear that they understand that there are some problems that need to be fixed, and I think that that's a very constructive way to mm -hmm. engage. The American business community clearly benefits from a constructive, normalized Sino-US relationship. When I was the United States ambassador in Sweden, Sweet, the Swedish government undertook an effort that was very interesting. They pulled together a document that was very digestible, very understandable for the American people, mm -hmm. that analyzed state by state by state how many American jobs and in what sectors are based in that particular state on, on Swedish investment in, mm. say, Virginia or Pennsylvania or New York or whatever, all 50 states. And they shared those, the, the, that with the business people in that state, the state governors who want to attract overseas investment, who then distributed it right. and so forth and so on. That's the kind of knowledge dissemination that needs to occur about the American-Chinese relationship. Mm. Um, and then there's the Chinese side. Um, the, the, my father and President Xi had a very good, close, personal relationship. Mm -hmm. And when my father died, President Xi wrote my mother a personally very meaningful letter that she received. And we treasure that and we thank President Xi mm. for that. We very much uh, respect the fact that he's been part and a central piece of the American-Chinese relationship. It is important to accentuate in Chinese policymaking that the success of both sides is part of the relationship. Mm. Because there are some in China who see China's long-term rise. There are some in China who see America's long-term decline. And there are some who actually celebrate that. That's no way to have a constructive relationship. If I want you to fail, we're not gonna have a friendship. If I want you to succeed, it's more likely we'll have a friendship. Mm. So how do you read, given the current realities in both countries, about the eagerness to develop better relations? Well, I think that's based on self-interest. Um, and I think that it's, it, it will become clear mm. as that self-interest is harmed by a breakdown of the relationship that those who are losing the benefits of the relationship will speak out. You mean we have to hurt more in order to know the real nature of the well, issue? Well, I, I hope it doesn't come to that. But probably that's something we have to face. I think that we don't want the relationship to break down. If the relationship is based on preventing failure, it's not as strong as a relationship on mutual success. Mm. But it's important for the Americans to understand that China's success is a great story for the world's humanity. And that's something that I really want to emphasize. You know, the way people in one country mm. perceive another country 
is not based on a study of data and statistics and, and facts. Mm. For regular people, that's not how they develop a, their perception of, say, China or Sweden or Germany. It's based on human interest stories. That's right. It's based on narratives. And the narrative of China over the last 40 years, going from a country that I visited in 1981, think about that, Chengdu, for example, which only had dirt roads and used army vehicles on the streets, to the tech city of the future that mm -hmm. Chengdu now, that is a great rags to riches story that I think Americans would mm -hmm. really respect and embrace because it's quite frankly universal and transferable to the American narrative as well. Ambassador Brzezinski, you grew up in a family in which big matters seem to be, can be discussed around the dinner table. It's true. <laughs> Very true. I just wonder, what was it like to be in a family of the Brzezinskis? It was the privilege of a lifetime because we were just my brother, my sister, yes. uh, and I, and my sister is one of America's most popular television talk show sure. hosts, and I think she would share this with you. When we were seven, eight, nine years old, my father at the dinner table or lunch table would be asking us about detente, salt <laughs> too, the Middle East peace process, <laughs> U.S.-China relations. Quite an appetizer. Yes, exa exactly. Uh, I'm surprised we didn't run away from home. <laughs> but the point, How did you manage to do that? <laughs> exactly. But the point is, is that my father, as a Washington leader, included his family in his life. And that was a great gift because not every Washington leader includes their family in their life. So just as stupid kids, we were brought to dinners with Deng Xiaoping and mm. Mrs. Deng. Did you still remember anything about it? Like, since you were very, very young. I absolutely remember it. Tell me more and about it, that. It was very human. What do I mean by that? A dinner in your home being put on by the premier of China. Your street is closed off by the Secret Service. There are helicopters overhead, <laughs> shining lights. The Secret Service says, two minutes out, Deng Xiaoping, Mrs. Deng are arriving in a long motorcade with police cars. And what happens in our house? My parents light the fireplace and the smoke comes pouring out because they hadn't opened the <laughs> flue. And so you know this story. They had to shut off that room right. and hold the meeting with Deng Xiaoping in the front hallway. And that's a, I want to emphasize that. Mm. Because in families, not everything is perfect. Mm. And you gotta just... Usually a lot of things are not perfect. Exactly. <laughs> and so you just deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so what we did was that we had that meeting there. My sister spilled caviar on Deng Xiaoping. Um, and, um, but he included us. And, and he included us in things around the world. I mean, my, my sister traveled with my father to the Middle East and met Yasser Arafat. Mm. I traveled with my father throughout Europe and to Asia. Mm. Uh, all of us came to retrace um, Mao Zedong's long march. But you know, for the common folks these days, yeah. when the media is pretty much portraying things from one perspective or not, what is the way for common people you know, to be more sophisticated about what they're seeing? The great Czech author, wrote, for every language you know, another life you live. And I think that's true. Americans and Chinese should learn foreign languages. Because by learning foreign languages, you absorb consciously and subconsciously right. what's going on with them. And I go back to my late father, who spoke five languages, and until his dying days, 
would translate from Russian or Polish or French mm. from newspapers so that he would have a feel for what is going on in Europe mm. or in Russia. He did, he, and, and that's important because it goes back to your initial question about foreign policy expertise. Right. Because if you're uninformed, if you're told black is white, you'll believe it because that's what you've been told. And foreign policy professionals need to be that professional. And that is learned about this and not just going on gut. Before we go, Ambassador Brzezinski, you're coming from a very well-known family. Yes. Your father fought his way to be where he was, absolutely through his personal fight in a way and efforts. What, what kinds of you know, inspiration you get from your family? Well, at the same time, what kind of individual life you need to have of your own, apart or in addition to the family tradition? No, my father was not born into money or power. He was cast on America's by shores by World War II, mm -hmm. so was an immigrant to America f through Canada. And many people don't know this, but he had polio when he was little, mm. and so wore leg braces when he was very young. So was he uh, one of the chosen ones to take leadership? No, he wasn't. You said it, he had to fight for it, and he faced setbacks mm. in his life. And there were times in my life when he shared stories that were meant to educate me. Mm -hmm. um, when I've had disappointments in my life, he said to me, Mark, learn from me, make this a disappointment not a defeat. Hmm. And he shared with me the story that when he was a professor at Harvard, the most popular professor, giving lectures that would have audiences clap for him standing, he was then denied tenure. When he and my mother expected to stay in Boston mm -hmm. as an academic family for the rest of their life. But instead they said, I'm not gonna make a defeat which brings me down and keeps me mm -hmm. down, but a disappointment that I learn from and grow from. And he went to New York, but set his sights on Washington. And he said, how do I use Columbia University in New York, but also relationships in Wall Street to get to Washington? And he built a relationship with David Rockefeller, mm -hmm. and he and David Rockefeller set up the Trilateral Commission, which became the most influential organization in international affairs. And he invited then Governor Carter to join the organization, and the rest is history. He was a Polish immigrant to America, mm. standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Soviets. That is what I learned. Mm. And so I know exactly what you're asking. There are good points and there are some difficult points, but the good outweighs the different because of things like that. Mr. Ambassador, what a pleasure. Uh, the pleasure is mine. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much for your Absolutely. time. Absolutely. That's my earlier conversation with Mark Brzezinski the son of Zbigniew Brzezinski, talking about his father's legacy on China-U.S. relations and his generation's responsibilities in making this bilateral relations go forward. Now, my conversation with John Thornton, Chair Emeritus of Brookings Institution, global co-chair of the Asia Society, who believes in the strength of people-to-people -people exchange between China and the United States. Our conversation took place during his latest trip to Beijing. Mr. Thornton, what a pleasure to see you. Good morning, nice to see you. Um, I see you're traveling to China this time with a long stretch of time. What is your assessment of the ambience here in terms of how people understand the current 
state of China-U.S. relations, particularly leading up to the election year? Well, first of all, the first thing I want to say is, I've been here now each, each of the last three months, and each time I've been struck by the fact that there are far fewer Westerners here than, than before COVID. And it's very noticeable to me. Uh, on, your, on your question, I think... Um, and what does that say to you? I, te I tend personally to underestimate the tale of big events. So the tale of COVID strikes me as longer than I would have thought. And I would have thought there would have been a return to a more sort of normal pattern faster. So it says to me it's taking longer than I would have anticipated. Uh, it's going in the right direction, but it's just slow. But many people are very glad that you are here because you have been serving as a very stable bridge between China and the United States, even during the most difficult years. Well, I believe in the, first of all, I believe in China. I believe in the relationship. I believe that, the, uh, that a healthy U.S.-China relationship is absolutely vital to the world. Uh, and I believe in backing up what I think, what I believe. And so uh, I came here right through COVID uh, three or four times. And now I'm trying to come every single month. Do you see ambience change every time when you come back? Particularly recently after the summit in San Francisco between the two presidents? Yes, I think that the... Now these, of course, these are sort of subtle... Right, of course, it's, it's personal kind of... Yeah, it's anecdotal, but I would say yes. I would say people in China seem to me to be more uh, hopeful and optimistic about the uh, U.S.-China relationship. Uh, and I think they'd like to see it uh, in better shape. And um, they'd like to see all the good things that come out of it come back at least as, at least as strong as they were before, if not better. So yes, I, do, I, see, I see definitely a, a positive change. Will they be disappointed given the election year is coming up in the U.S.? Well, First of all, I would say, I tend to think of things over long stretches of time. I think the trajectory or the trend is very clear, and the trend is a, is a positive one over time, uh, both within each country and between the countries. Now, if you ask just about 2024, I think they could be disappointed in the sense that the rhetoric will be harsh. The reality, the substance, I think is going to continue to go forward. And so disappointed on one level and not on another, I guess is what I would say. After San Francisco summit, many believe it takes a lot to implement. Now, what do you see as the priority of implementation in order to follow up on the spirit of San Francisco summit between the two presidents? Well, the first thing I want to say about San Francisco is that the speech that uh, President Xi Jinping gave, uh, I thought was excellent. At the dinner? At the dinner. And I was in the room, and I was also present at the prior uh, private reception. And the speech, as I was listening to it, and as I was watching the people in the room and how they were reacting, mm -hmm. it suddenly occurred to me that the speech was actually directed at the American people. Not, it was not a speech 
directed at the American business community. And if you recall, a lot of his speech was dedicated to uh, examples of people-to-people -people exchanges and the positive impact. At one point, he, he, he asked the, the most important question of all. He said, uh, we have a choice. We can be adversaries or we can be partners. And then a few sentences later, he answered his own question and he said, China wants to be a partner and friend of the United States. He was very clear, very simple. No one in the room could be under any ambiguity as to what he was saying. Now, I start with that because uh, I had recently, for my own purposes, uh, encouraged Frank Luntz, the very, uh, very prominent pollster in the United States, to do a survey of ordinary Americans about China, U.S. China, uh, the Chinese people, the Chinese government, and, and related matters. And he did a, a very large survey, and he came back and he said, the most, uh, the strongest piece of the U.S.-China relationship by a long way uh, are the people-to-people -people relations. He said, when you poll ordinary Americans and you ask them, how do you feel about China? 79% are either unfavorable or neutral. If you ask the American people, how do you feel about the Chinese people? 81% are favorable or neutral. So I was struck by the fact that President Xi's focus on people to people and the analytical underpinning of a survey uh, supporting that same view uh, says to me that the focus in the speech was exactly right. And that gets to your question, which is, what's the single most important thing to implement? My own view is the single most important thing to implement uh, is as massive a people-to-people -people series of exchanges as one, as one can have. We should have as many American tourists as possible coming to China. You remember in, in President Xi's speech, he mentioned inviting 50,000 American students to come here. That's very important. Uh, cultural exchanges, uh, sports exchanges. Uh, we should, be, we should be, look at that as a kind of uh, investment in the future of the world. And if you look at it that way, uh, it's a very inexpensive investment. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that we should be focusing on. And now, one more thing to say uh, on, on priorities. Of course, the other priority that goes without saying, but is absolutely vital, is the avoidance of confrontation. And uh, under all circumstances, as far as I'm concerned, it's absolutely essential that there's no confrontation between the two countries. But how? That is a question, isn't it? Well, yes, it's a, it's a very good point. Another, another thing I feel strongly about is that the, the ways in which the two governments engage needs to change. It needs to catch up to the 21st century. Tell me more about that. Well, I think at the moment, the two governments engage more or less the way they have for a long time. And we're in, a, we're in a whole new world. The world is changing and it's changing fast. And in that new world, the U.S. and China and that relationship is right at the center. And because it's at the center, the way I look at this, starting at the very top, the two presidents should be talking to each other with great frequency. They should be seeing each other in person uh, as many times as possible. <laughs> 
and then the key people who work for them at the cabinet level, the state council level, they should also be told, your job is to get, is to build a close relationship with your counterpart. So that at a minimum, both sides have got extremely good information about exactly what each side thinks and why they think it and what's important to them and what's a little less important and what's not important. I think that that would have a very big impact on uh, the practical thinking and the practical decision making that goes on day to day, week to week, month to month. And I think that's the single best way to, to lower the possibility of confrontation. That's my latest conversation with John Thornton, Chairman Apparatus of Brookings Institution and Global Co-Chair of Asia Society on China-U.S. Relations. That's all the time we have for today. If you'd like to know more, you can always search World Insight on our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Tian Wei on behalf of the team. Thanks for being with us. Bye.